Hello and welcome to our podcast, Japanese Leadership, Looking Back at the G7 Summit. I'm Fred Katayama, Executive Vice President at the U.S.-Japan Council. At the G7 Hiroshima Summit earlier this year, host Japan took the lead. It called on developed nations to help the Global South tackle poverty and inequality. Those developing countries are slammed with food crises as they struggle to repay huge debts to the developed nations. Those debt payments exceed the amount many countries spend on food and health care for their own people. A dependence on foreign aid can also create a power imbalance in the region. Now, to discuss all this, I'm joined now by Mari Suckle. She is Professor of Management Studies at Said Business School, and she's a professional fellow at New College, Oxford. Mari has written extensively about Japanese business management and the economy, and she's a leading authority on global business strategy. Hi, Mari, and welcome. Hello, pleasure to be here. Great to have you with us. Well, Mari, first, please define for us um, this geographical term that has come up at the G7, Global South. Well, the notion of Global South, I think, has ambiguity for reason, and I think that we should just endorse it. So firstly, it is not an economic concept. So developing countries or emerging markets where there's clear definition about low and middle income economies uh, and the global south is not like that. It's actually not a geographic concept either because um, below the equator, the south, the global south includes Russia from the north but excludes Australia and New Zealand. So evidently, it is a geopolitical concept used by big nations like India, China and Brazil to assert their voice in how things should happen in the global south. So once you think of this as a geopolitical concept, I think it's easier to accept that the ambition is there and the ambiguity around who is in, who is out, is something to be sorted out in the future. These uh, geopolitical uh, power balances shifting uh, from the old times when it used to be the case that the world was ruled by the victors of the Second World War with institutions like the United Nations, the IMF, World Bank, WTO. And we now have competing institutions that would actually compete to uh, decide on who's going to get the investment capital and things like that as well. So I think it's good to think of India and Brazil and China and maybe other nations who are basically trying to assert their voice in the global south. Well, I've been to business journals for a long time. We surely use that word emerging markets a lot. Well, um, earlier you referred to the victors of World War II. Let's talk about the developed nations. Um, do you think that the uh, uh, G7 countries um, have failed to offer enough assistance for the global south? So that raises a question of what is sufficient or enough. And obviously the clearest uh, uh, benchmark is the longstanding United Nations target uh, that developing uh, developed nations should spend 0.7% of their uh, gross national income on official uh, development assistance, so ODA as it's known. And looking at recent time trends, it's really only Germany uh, with 0.88% in 2022 uh, that surpassed that target. All the other G7 nations have been spending much lower than that. Japan, for example, are just less than 0.4%. Um, we should also um, think of not bilateral, but multilateral aid as well. And in real terms, multilateral uh, assistance channeled through the multilateral development banks have gone down in real terms, uh, in about 25% in real terms uh, in the last 10 years or so. Um, so that's the situation at the moment. Well, um, 
Marty, let's talk about uh, debts. Um, should lenders or developed countries uh, cancel their debts um, to help end hunger, or should they just suspend payments as a gesture? Will that do the trick? Well, debt um, cancellation shouldn't be considered to be a gesture, and I think that we should really get behind, firstly, the root cause of why the debt issue has really become a problem for um, about half of the 70 low-income countries today. Uh, so uh, one of the reasons is that some of those nations actually borrowed from China quite heavily. Uh, other reason is that during COVID uh, lockdown, some of the nations had no choice but to borrow. And I think that to date, there is this informal mechanism of the so-called Paris Club, where in Paris, all the credit nations get together to try and think about how to restructure or forgive debt. Uh, but at the moment, uh, some of the G20 nations are not associated with that club, uh, in particular China, and that causes a problem as well. So we have to think about potentially an alternative mechanism, like maybe direct budget support to some of the countries which are really suffering from public debt. Um, in your view, is Japan using its position, the presidency of the G7, well um, to advocate a perspective for the global south? Sure, absolutely. And, you know, focusing on Japan's role, I mean, obviously it hosted its Hiroshima um, conference summit uh, recently, uh, and that's G7. Uh, Japan is obviously part of the G20. And now uh, we'll, we'll um, you know, be seeing um, a lot of development through the G20's um, recommendations through the independent expert uh, group's um, report that was published some, some months ago. And the ambition uh, there uh, in this uh, so-called IEG, the Independent Expert Group recommendation, uh, is to transform the nature of the global financial architecture through the multilateral development banks. Uh, and there's lots and lots of technicalities around there, but upshot of all these reforms is that a really ambitious target for actually tripling the amount of non-concessional loan commitments by 2030 and similarly tripling the amount of concessional loans and grants that would go to uh, low-income countries by 2030 as well. And I think Japan, again, could and needs to get behind all these initiatives. And Mari, what role do you see Japan playing there? What does Japan have to offer? That's a very good question. And I think, uh, you know, apart from being a party to the global initiative, um, what Japan can offer, I think, is at least... Um, you know, with an interest in re-engaging with the private sector to deliver uh, developing uh, assistance, Japan obviously have a vibrant uh, private uh, sector, private businesses. And so I would have thought that Japan could also um, provide know-how uh, through private businesses in uh, providing finance for sustainable infrastructure investment, uh, particularly for uh, meeting the Paris Agreement tar climate targets and things like that as well. Uh, the other thing that I think is equally important is articulating what are the alternative development models uh, for economic growth. Um, we have at the moment the, you know, the US model maybe and then the Chinese model. Those are really extremes and Japan has always been renowned for having a very uh, robust industrial policy where the government actually, you know, redirects resources, but in such a way that doesn't stifle private sector initiatives. Uh, so I think articulating what are some of the 
alternative growth models that uh, these uh, countries in the global south could adopt, at least to learn lessons from them. So perhaps a role for uh, Japan's METI, uh, uh, Ministry of Economy, Economy and Trade Industry, to play there when you're talking about alternative models and industrial policy. Um, the global south uh, is likely to suffer heavily from uh, the effects of climate change and financial shocks to the world economy, Muddy. So how can we insulate these nations from disruptions to the supply chain? I think that it's a global uh, issue that is not just for the South. Uh, that's first to say. And I think uh, that insulation may be too strong uh, and ambition. It might be very difficult to insulate. And generally speaking, we are talking about diversifying and not just concentrating on one location. And everybody, in at least in business strategy, is beginning to talk about the China plus one. Uh, policy where China is such an important location for many global corporations that you know diversifying away completely, getting out of China is not a possibility. It's not realistic simply, but to really have China and then at least one, if not more, of the alternative sources of supply. And we're talking about countries like uh, Thailand and Vietnam at the moment, but with uh, development of infrastructure and the multilateral uh, development banks giving assistance to lower income countries maybe they can accelerate uh, the process for alternative locations that could become part of the world uh, global uh, supply and global trade system uh, would, would um, increase in number. And Marty, how can the Global South create economies that are sustainable and viable? I think I can answer that at two levels. So it's important that the economies remain part of the global trade system. And for that, I think that you need good infrastructure, which could be accelerated in the investment with assistance from multilateral banks and specific donors. So that's one thing that could happen. And with that is the diversification of global supply, and they can be part of that global supply chain uh, that is, uh, you know, in, in all kinds of industries, including manufacturing, but also services as well. And Last but not least, I think, is the importance of thinking about what kind of development models they want to adopt for the medium to long term. And that is very much about articulating what is the role of the government in directing resources uh, in the economy, uh, to what extent the private sector takes initiative, the public-private um, in a partnership that is around uh, in many different sectors of the economy, including uh, resources and infrastructure as well. There's no one best way, uh, in my view, and it's really up to each of the nations in the global south to articulate what they think works in their own country. Well, Mari, another big issue in the region is the environment. Um, there's a new system that could help protect that environment, and it's a concept called a circular economy, uh, that system that reuses and regenerates materials and products. Would a circular economy model work for the global south? So my view on that is that it does. And in a way, a lot of the uh, developing economies are already doing that. They are definitely producing less uh, things which have to be recycled in the South uh, than in the North. And so I'm going to turn that question around to kind of focus our light on the North, taking an initiative in meeting the Paris Agreement climate targets. Uh, and with that, I think the Global South can work with them uh, but much of this is very much about the political will and the coalition building to make things happen. Uh, and the South 
on its own won't be able to do much. The North on its own won't be able to do much. It is a global issue that has to be tackled by global um, agenda. So they all got to work together and help each other out. Okay, thank you, Mari, for sharing your views. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm Fred Katayama. This is Japanese Leadership Looking Back at the G7 Summit. Thanks for joining us.